Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This past Sunday, South LA and the hip-hop world got turned upside down when we found out that rapper Nipsey Hussle had been shot dead. His alleged killer, Eric Holder, has now been arrested. Nipsey died after being shot in the head and torso in what police called a personal dispute with his killer. The thing that makes this death more tragic is that Nipsey Hussle had become more than a Grammy-nominated rapper. He went from being a gang member to a rap star to an entrepreneur to a community organizer, an activist who wanted to turn his old neighborhood around. He had heavily invested in South L.A. and wanted to be a model for people in that community. We spoke to Garrett Kennedy with the L.A. Times about Nipsey Hussle's legacy and we started off by talking about how the whole story played out. Nipsey was at his store, the Marathon. It's not unusual to see him at a store. He was there often. He was always there, you know, greeting fans, greeting visitors. So it wasn't out of the ordinary for him to be at a shop on a busy weekend. What we have learned is that there was an altercation, a verbal altercation between Nipsey and the alleged suspect, Eric, who then left the scene and then came back and shot him multiple times. And the thing about it, and I've, I've said this a bunch of times, but May the killing so particularly cruel, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, is the fact that this happened at his business. This happened yeah. at a spot where the community really knew what he was about. It was such proof of what he was trying to do, which is investing in the neighborhood, making it better, bringing more businesses in there, and also creating more jobs for, for those of us in the community. The coroner's office did say that he did die from gunshots to the head and torso, and you just started getting into it. I mean, the bigger picture really is who this man was and what he meant to the neighborhood, to his community there. He was a guy who joined the Roland 60s, a Crips gang. He went on to make it big, but he didn't abandon his home. He came back. He wanted to invest in the neighborhood. He started businesses there. He offered jobs to people. He donated to good causes only to be shot outside of his business there where he was trying to turn the neighborhood around is also part of that tragedy. Tell us a little bit more about who Nipsey Hussle was as a person, you know, his life before and really turning it around into becoming this community leader. In today's LA Times, our headline with our coverage was, you know, a legend in the city. And so, you know, a lot of folks took kind of offense to that because for so many People in L.A. and across the nation, they had never heard of this guy. And I think that's what kind of made what he was doing so very special. This was somebody who, for 10 years, he's selling his mixtapes out of his trunk in the parking lot. Really typical kind of hip-hop, rags to riches tales. But where he was making his money, there wasn't somebody who was, I'm going to get my money and I'm going to leave the neighborhood. I'm going to leave the hood. This is kind of what we've all been taught in hip-hop culture. is so aspirational. And so, so many of us who have been in these type of neighborhoods, as soon as we feel like we can make it out, we leave. We all, we've all done it. I've done it. Um, right. It's, know, it's that so, kind of natural thing. You want to move on to bigger and better things. Yeah. It's, but, it's, a, it's a natural thing of I, wanting to do. He even said in, in a couple of uh, interviews, and in our culture, there's this narrative that says, follow the athletes, follow the entertainers. And that's cool. But there should be something that says, follow Elon Musk, follow Mark Zuckerberg, follow these grander visions of things. 
And he said that that was part of what he wanted to do. He was an influential artist and it made sense for him to be one of the people that waves those flags to promote business, to promote people getting better, staying there with the community. That's where he was trying to to make the biggest impact. He was forging a different type of blueprint for what rap success looks like, right? What he did really early on was he said, okay, I've experienced what it's like to be at a label. I've experienced what those things can mean to my music. So let me just go ahead and continue to keep 100%, not only just my power, but also kind of having autonomy over my own voice. So him deciding to sell his music himself, these are very basic one-on-one music business things to do, right? But then he was also at the same time saying, okay, I want to be an example for this community. So as I'm making this money, I'm going to put it back into the community. I'm going to open up a shop that starts as just a place for me to sell my merch, but it's also a place where I'm employing people. I'm then going to turn around and buy the entire strip mall of where this business is. And then I'm going to create low-income housing because, yes, everybody in South L.A., particularly in Crenshaw, They're seeing the level of gentrification that's happening. They're feeling excluded. They're feeling pushed aside. Nobody's wondering what the vision for this neighborhood is. This is historically black neighborhoods. Lots of change is happening, but those changes are coming from people who don't look like us. Trying to be an example of this can still be us as well. What happens to the community now? How are they going to be honoring him and how do they move forward? One way that I hope that the community moves forward is taking his vision and sort of implementing it themselves. You know, yes, everyone here not millionaires, obviously. But I think what he was trying to show us is that you didn't have to be, right? What he was trying to show us was take pride in where you're from and you can do good, whether it's big or small. And that's that's why we wanted to write about the big and small, buying shoes for neighborhood kids, yeah. repaving a playground, repaving basketball courts, trying to help the homeless in any way possible. Not here's a couple of dollars, but hey, look, I have this, I have 15 or so businesses come work at one of my shops. I'm going to get you off the street. So he was doing as much as he could always. And I think that's what makes this really heartbreaking in such a way. I Really close to where I, I live, there's this billboard of him, and it's from Grammy-nominated album Victory Lap, which is the last time I saw Nipsey was Grammy weekend, you know, congratulating him on such a huge accomplishment because it is really hard to become an artist the way that he was, which is fairly underground, you know, fairly a niche market of just like West Coast rap heads. We all knew who he was, but a rap fan back where I'm from in Cincinnati had no idea who he was, probably until Victory Lap. So to have him have that moment, and then a couple months later, here we are having to write about him in this way, it just really, really, really pains me in such a way, especially living in the community where I was seeing that he was doing good. And you don't have to go far to hear some story about what Nipsey has done for somebody. Garrett Kennedy, reporter for the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Just an update on the Nipsey Hussle story. The man who is alleged to be his shooter, Eric Holder, has now been charged with murder. He pled not guilty and his bond has been set at $5 million. One of the interesting things that developed is that his attorney is Chris Darden, who was famously part of the prosecution team in the O.J. Simpson double murder trial. For his part, he has argued before the court that there should be no video or photos taken because it could publicize the image of Eric Holder too much, and it could interfere with him getting a fair trial. We'll find out more. His next day in court is May 10th. Fun story we did this week was talking about the high-tech transportation of the future that we were promised. A lot of those things are not here. We don't have jetpacks. We don't have flying cars, but we are almost there on self-driving cars. We spoke to Corinne Iozio, editor at Popular Science, to talk about how close we are to getting some of these future transportation technologies. 
And I started off by asking Corinne exactly what Popsi meant in 1924 when they said that flying cars were only 20 years away. If you asked us to make that assessment again today, our answer would again be, I don't know, probably give us 20 years. I think now that we have a better sense of what is necessary to make these technologies work from an innovation standpoint, but also from just like a regulatory perspective, we're able to make like much more measured and sober assessments of where things really stand in real life. Let's start with the the flying cars. We're still a possibility maybe of 20 years away, but there are a lot of companies that are trying to make this happen. Right now, they kind of take the form of a huge drone where a person can sit in the middle and, but you're basically flying a huge drone kind of thing. Yeah, and I think that's sort of the the weird middle ground that nobody's quite found yet, right? You don't want to make a car with wings, but you also don't want to make a plane with wheels because obviously planes already have wheels, right? What does a flying car even look like? And probably the best vision we have for that is this one company called Terrafugia, which is a car that has wings that fold out. You actually can see it in those two discrete states, which is different than a lot of the other stuff that we've seen, which just very much look like overblown consumer drones with seats in them. Uber, for its part, says that they want to make a fleet of flying air taxis and have them in L.A. and Dallas by 2020. That's pretty close. And I don't know if that's going to get off the ground. Where do these things take off and land from and how much noise do they make when they do it? Because you can't have people making huge, tremendous jet engine sounds on suburban streets. It just doesn't work. Right. So what do we need to make these happen? Better batteries and obviously more power for these vertical takeoffs. Batteries are the biggest problem, right? Because the challenge with powering any of these things is that you have to do better than fuel, right? Fuel is incredibly energy efficient. Batteries only have about less than 5% of the fuel efficiency of gasoline, which means you need a lot of batteries to lift something up off the ground, but batteries equal weight, which makes the lift harder. So we need to get to a place where we have what's called solid state batteries, And the difference here is that solid state materials can run hotter. And the hot heat, obviously, is energy. The hotter something is, the more energy it can hold. So we know how to get energy into these new solid state materials. But right now, scientists are struggling to make one that actually holds on to that charge for long enough to have a takeoff or even a safe flight. Another one of the big transportation science fiction-y things was traveling in a system of tubes And we kind of have a little look into that with Elon Musk's Hyperloop. The biggest problem here is money and digging into the ground and actually creating that infrastructure. This is not a train technology problem. We know precisely how magnetic levitating trains work. They exist in other places in the world. The challenge here is you have to put these things under the ground. And digging these tunnels is very, very expensive and tremendously time-consuming. Elon, as he often does, is very ambitious with his goals. He says that we can dig these tunnels for about a billion dollars a mile. But then look at things that are actually happening in the real world, like the Second Avenue subway in New York City, which the city spent $2.5 billion per mile. To make these things happen, we would need stronger, more durable materials. I love in the article how you mentioned that their pods that they're using are made with some composite material that they call vibranium, which we all know was featured in you know the Black Panther movies, things like that. But it's like a carbon fiber material that they use for their products. Yeah, this is another company that's not ne- that's not an Elon Musk company. It's Hyperloop Transportation Technologies, and they have this special carbon fiber that is lighter and stronger than steel, which is super great. They also have integrated sensors in 
minutes so that they can get constantly a live picture of the integrity of the trains and the cars. And while the Hyperloop thing is more of a mass transit thing, jetpacks, like a personal futuristic transportation device. I've always wanted a jetpack since I saw the movie The Rocketeer with Jennifer Connelly and Billy Campbell. That one, you're strapping a rocket to your back. That just screams danger to me all over the place. There's a bunch of challenges here, right? There's the danger of people just flying around in the sky. We can see how responsible we are with even small drones. Now, all of a sudden, we're going to be shooting people into the sky. So that's one area area of concern. Also, these are literal jets. These are turbojets. They're incredibly loud. They're very heavy. And even the ones that we have that are actually making their way to market cost something in the neighborhood of a quarter of a million dollars. So yes, jetpacks exist, but jetpacks for people to commute with, certainly not in, in the next decade. Finally, just the one that is the closest on the horizon, self-driving cars. While we're still a way off from true self-driving cars where you just get in and say, take me home. We are making a lot of headway with it. There's uh, companies like Uber, like Waymo, that's a division of Google, who are pretty close and have already launched some self-driving cars. There are active self-driving taxi programs in Arizona. There's another one in Las Vegas. And, you know, these aren't fully autonomous vehicles. There's still human safety drivers in them. But it's important that these things get on the road because similar to human driver's education, the robots need to learn not just the rules of the road, but also the type of decision-making that a human driver would make to know the difference between a falling plastic bag that they can drive through and a pedestrian that they should break for. Corinne Iozio, Deputy Editor at Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Happy to do it. The controversy surrounding Joe Biden still continues to swirl around him. Despite him not officially running for president yet, There are now seven women who have accused Biden of invading their personal space, though none of them feel that it was sexual in nature. It just wasn't appropriate in a professional setting. We spoke to Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, to see how Joe Biden is responding to these allegations. We didn't hear from former Vice President Joe Biden for a few days after these pieces started emerging. And he released this video, talked straight to camera, said he realizes that the times have changed, that he's always been the kind of person that was touchy-feely, that he was wanted to engage people in politics on a one-on-one basis. And then now he realizes that he shouldn't have done that. This was seen as sort of an apology, although he didn't appear to say the words, I'm sorry, anywhere in there, but demonstrating that he thinks it's a learning experience, that he thinks that he should be listening to these women and and changing his behavior. These allegations started with former Nevada politician Lucy Flores, who said he came up behind her, uh, grabbed her shoulders and then kissed her on the back of the head. Other allegations have surfaced are all very similar, uh, either grabbing them on the shoulders or leaning in and pressing his forehead against the woman's and kind of whispering to them. A lot of these accusers have really said they didn't feel like they were being harassed or they didn't feel that it was sexual in nature. But what they have said is that they just felt it was out of place in a professional setting. And that's what really made them uncomfortable. How does this play into the overall theme of trying to pin these things on Joe Biden? It's really more about him being out of touch more than anything else. That's right. When I talk to people who are close to Biden or even just political folks in Washington, they say, look, there's a difference between what Joe Biden did, which is kind of be a space invader, invading people's personal space, and what, say, Donald Trump talked about doing on tape, which was grabbing women against their will, pressuring them in a sexual manner. That these are different things and that we shouldn't be treating them the same. But it is part of this narrative that Biden is just out of touch, that he's a man of a different 
different time. That's his biggest struggle. You know, he's going to be walking on, presumably after he launches onto a debate stage, with a number of opponents who are decades younger than him. He and his people think that that's an asset to him. He has seen that everything. He has been there. He has experience. He can bring stability. But it's also going to be something he has to contend with. And something like this, where you're like, you're the guy who doesn't realize it's not okay anymore to put your arm on brown women in a way that makes them uncomfortable is going to sort of exacerbate that notion that he's just not in his time anymore. There's been a lot of people who have come to the defense of the former vice president, people even pointing to efforts that he led to pass the Violence Against Women Act and other efforts to end sexual assault against women on college campuses. So they're pointing to a lot of that stuff. Has this derailed any of his campaign preparations? Because we're still expecting him to announce a bid for the presidency. There's no indication at all that this has derailed his plans. When I talk to people that are close to his pre-campaign campaign, they tell me that it's still full steam ahead. And in fact, they anticipated some of this. They thought this was one of the things that was going to be critical about Biden and the, the discussion that would be had. They also expect to talk about Anita Hill and how he handled the confirmation hearings in which she made sexual harassment accusations. They still expect to talk about the crime bill. They still expect to talk about some of his foreign policy positions. This is just the, the beginning of something that they expect to be a long conversation about his past experience. And, and Nancy Pelosi has really said, you know, he also didn't really apologize. He needs to change the way he acts and take ownership in the way he acts. And she said that it's not really how he perceives it, his interactions to be. It's how the person really receives it. So is this going to affect him long term? Yeah, that's to be seen. Any of this kind of accusation can and cannot affect a campaign. It really matters how they handle it, how they respond. At some point, he's going to do interviews and he's going to get asked about it outside of that controlled setting of a video that he put out, how he responds then, how he answers potentially criticism on the debate stage about it. That's what's really going to matter. And furthermore, how he behaves going forward. Once he starts running, there's going to be lots of instances of him interacting with people in public. And if he's still sort of doing the same things, I think that it's a problem that doesn't go away. But if he handles it properly, it could be something that, that he weathers. And, and by the time we get to the Iowa caucuses next February, we've, we've all but forgotten. If women are being disrespected or mistreated, they should speak up and things should be handled accordingly. But I just can't imagine that with all of the presidential hopefuls, they're all scared of something unexpected coming out and just derailing their whole campaign. That is a fear that I think they all live in, especially if it's something that maybe just hasn't aged well, as they say, like something that would not have been considered wrong or inappropriate at the time that we now view in this context as wrong or inappropriate. And look, they also have to know that whatever vulnerability the president perceives them as having, he is going to really hone in on. The President Trump talked about Joe Biden in a speech on Tuesday night. He tweeted a video that was a cut of Joe Biden's video, but he like had a floating Joe Biden, hugging Joe Biden. It was really kind of strange, but Trump won't let things go right. if he thinks that it's to his advantage. And that's another factor they're all going to have to deal with going forward. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.